Well, good morning, everybody. I'm, it's actually really awesome that we have Jane here because how I'm going to start out today's message is about the house. Um, did you actually know that the house at one point was a guy's house? Don't ask Joe and Lila about it, though, because they're still pretty traumatized. I'm not really sure all the reasons that they're traumatized, but just that when you ask them about guys living in the house next door, that Joe just goes, oh, pizza boxes, pizza boxes, pizza boxes everywhere. Um, so all I know is about pizza boxes, so many pizza boxes. Um, but then at one point, uh, when the church bought the house, they asked the question, um, what is this house? You know, what, what's it for? What's it meant to become? Uh, what's the identity of this house? And because it was originally built as a family home in the early 1900s, there's some really cool features about the house I could show you um, from that era. But and then at one point, a pastor's family lived there because it was right next door to the church. Um, and then it was a boy's house filled with pizza boxes. Um, and, and then at one point it was just a home for women. That, that was their first really good move, um, changing it to women, but it wasn't like really focused or anything like that. And then about 10 years ago, the church got together and they said, hey, this house is made for something more. This house is a ministry. Um, so, so let's organize it as such. Uh, let's harness the gifts it already has. Let's put the right people in the right places. Um, and let's tweak some things so that we can make the most out of the ministry that already exists in this house. Um, and that it would be a safe place for women in college to figure out how to become adults in and for them to learn about their calling and find their place in the kingdom. And... Um, I would say we're walking what, in what I would call the golden era of the Harriet House um, because it's, we're not in the stages of construction anymore. Um, and, you know, there's, there, there was pieces of it that had to be built on um, that the vision is now clear and the right people are in the right places. The dishes are done. It's so amazing. I know it's a big deal. But we get to build strong women and then deploy them and all of those pieces had to come together in order for us to be in this era that we're in now. Um, and the reason I start there isn't just to brag on the house, but I love to do that. Um, but because um, the house had many stages of, of becoming what it is now. And some of that was tangible, like adding on rooms and um, putting in a house mom and some of the organizational structure and getting a clear vision for what it was meant to be and then actually living out what it's meant to be. Um, and the reason I start there is because you and I are also part of a larger working organism known as the body of Christ. And we are becoming what we're meant to be and that, that when we're stepping into our role, when we're learning how to function in our role in the church, then the local church gets to be all that it was meant to be. And, um, and it takes every single one of us to be moving operators for it to function well. First Corinthians uh, 12, 27 says that you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is part of it, appointed by God. And as you look at the landscape of America today, you're, you see a lot of graveyards known as churches, where people just simply show up, but they're not functioning the way God has ask them to function. And so we're in this series on the disciples, 
And, and really it's kind of come down to identity. Who are you? What kind of disciple are you? How do I move into the fullness and vision and purpose that God has for my life? And so today we're going to look at Matthew, the disciple of Matthew. And as we look at our own identity, what kind of disciple we are, I think we can see in Matthew's journey how he looked at Jesus and the qualities of who Jesus was to find his own identity. And honestly, a lot of us don't really know that much about Matthew because he's not explicitly written about a lot. Um, but you know him because he wrote a book. And you could learn about from the like five verses that are explicitly about him. But I think we can also learn a lot more from his writings. When you look at somebody's writings, like in Jane's book, you could see values that she might have and the the way that she saw her life growing up. Same with Matthew, we can see the things that he valued and what he saw in the story of Jesus. And so Matthew was a tax collector. And today we might think like, oh, that's like my accountant, um, but that's not. In, and these times, tax collectors were really hated by society um, for a couple of reasons. And one of the reasons was because they were tax collecting for the Roman government. And the Roman government was very oppressive towards Jewish people. And um, so tax collectors were kind of seen almost as traitors because they were collaborating with the Roman government. And then the other reason that they were really hated is because they were seen as pretty greedy. Because not only would they say, here's how much you owe in taxes, but actually it's more than that. I'm going to pocket the rest. And so people really didn't like them. And nobody really wanted to hang out with them. Uh, only other tax collectors and prostitutes would hang out with them. It was, they were seen as like the big sinners. Um, and so basically Matthew was a disappointment to his family because of his profession. And to the religious elite, it was, it was really bad to even be seen with them. It could tarnish your good reputation. So it was likely that even Matthew had been disowned by his family. And I love that Matthew is the first gospel in the New Testament. I don't think it's an accident because he, we see that he kind of bridges a gap um, between Old Testament and New Testament on purpose. And um, I don't think it was an accident that he's in the beginning because the Old Testament is rough. I don't know if you've read through it, but it's really, it's really rough. The, the way I read through my Bible on my own time is eschatologically, which is just verse by verse, cover to cover. And when I was reading through the Old Testament the first time, it was exhausting. It was a lot because it's just, it's story after story. It's just rough because it's these people just trying to figure out what God looks like without the lens of Jesus. And, um, and between the last pages of the Old Testament and where Matthew starts, there's 400 years of silence generations of people go by without hearing God. And then Matthew starts writing and Jesus shows up. And it's, when I read it, it was like a breath of fresh air. It was like, oh, thank God, like he's here, it's gonna be okay. Even though I knew how it turned out, when I was reading through it, it almost felt like, is this ever gonna end? And um, the Old Testament is just these stories, these people who are just trying to figure it out without focus, without being able to see Jesus, without using the lens of Jesus. When I 
when I take pictures, I do photography a little bit on the side, and when I take pictures and I have to get really up close to something, I'll sometimes switch to a manual mode, and uh, because it, my autofocus just won't do what I want it to do. And so I'll start turning the lens, and it starts to focus, and it starts to focus, and then it's right where it needs to be, and then I can take the picture. Um, but the Old Testament was like it was out of focus. They couldn't quite make out who God was. You could maybe get like a shape, like you just couldn't understand who God is without the lens of Jesus. And so they would try to figure it out and they would try to do what they thought God wanted them to do and then they would mess it up royally. It's just a mess when we can't see God, it's a, it's a mess. And so over and over, they're messing it up and it's exhausting, but over and over the prophets and these stories are pointing back to the same message that this prophecy that had been given to them of a, a coming savior, that he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, don't give up hope, he's coming. And then Matthew. And what Matthew does in the very beginning of his gospel is with his audience, his audience is primarily to those of Jewish descent. And he takes them back and reminds them, hey, look at how messy humanity is. So that you can fully understand how big it is that Jesus is here now. And so he steps back and shows them highlights and he starts bridging this gap of, hey, there's been 400 years. So there's a lot of people that maybe have forgotten because we haven't heard from God in a while. And so he starts bridging this gap and he starts with uh, the genealogy of Jesus. So that's where we're gonna start. Um, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter one, verse one. You can click there or turn your physical Bible there. And most people actually skip over this part because it seems kind of boring, but I won't go through all of it. I'll just do two verses. Matthew one, one says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And you might recognize these names, um, but you know, in all honesty, like seriously, these guys? Because even though yes, we know who Abraham is and he um, had a lot of promises to him, like God promised generations to this guy, but he also, didn't fully trust God and was a little worried that he wouldn't get a son that he was promised. And so he slept with his, hand, his wife's handmaiden and because he was just a little unsure that his wife was, that she, she just might be too old for a miracle. And David, yeah, King David, big guy, but he's also the guy who slept with his best friend's wife, got her pregnant and then had him killed to cover up his sin. Isaac was a parenting failure where favoritism ran rampant. Jacob steals his brother's inheritance and continues on the, gene, the generation of parenting failure. Judah also is a parenting failure. He ends up sleeping with his deceased son's wife because he thought she was a prostitute because that seemed like a good idea. And then the baby that comes out of that pregnancy is the next person in line to Jesus. I mean, I could keep going because it's just failure after failure. It really is. Um, but he also strategically lists women in this account. 
Um, and it, that's really unheard of for a couple of reasons. One, women weren't really seen during this time, but also they weren't really part of the genealogical accounts. Um, but he's very strategic about that, um, that even though it's broken story after broken story, it's also small stories of redemption over and over. So even though Abraham didn't fully believe that a miracle would come, his lineage was redeemed. And he's now the father of many nations. He has a song after him. I mean, that's a big deal. And he's forever referred to as the friend of God. And even though David messed up royally in his relationships, he's known as one of the greatest kings. He's a warrior poet. He's known as the guy after God's own heart. Isaac's parenting failures redeemed. Same with Jacob. He goes from being called the deceiver to Israel, the name of a nation, because he wrestles with God. And despite Judah's giant failure, the lineage of Jesus, the Son of God, is referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You know, each of these stories is a failure, but each of them is a small picture of redemption, all folded into the larger redemption of humanity that comes with Jesus. And so it's as if Matthew is saying, hey, you're not out. Look at these guys. They messed it up over and over. It doesn't matter who you are or where you came from, if you're a man, if you're a woman, what your job was, what your race is, any of these things, what your biggest failure has been, he came for you. He's redeemed me, a tax collector, He's going to redeem you. And I love how, we won't turn there, but at the end of Matthew, he ends his book with the Great Commission. And I think that's really beautiful um, because he says, hey, like this is the redemption, but you don't get to just hold it. You got to go share it. He says, go into all the nations. Everyone's in. Go tell people. Let's make heaven crowded. He says, to share in this redemption. So we're going to turn over to Matthew 9, where we actually see the story of the interaction between Matthew and Jesus. Matthew 9, starting in verse 9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, what is your, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the right, not the righteous, but the sinners. So once Matthew found his story of redemption, he didn't try to elevate him to like be a Pharisee or go off and do something different, or join a new social circle. He looked at where God had him already. And he wanted to bring that redemption to the people that were already in his life. He believed, hey, if this can work for me, I've got all these people that I love and I care about, and I want them to experience the same thing. And it's a tragedy in the church when we have people that sit and think that I'm gonna leave ministry up to the experts. 
can I just say, like, you're in ministry. I'm in ministry. We all are in ministry. You're bivocational. And it actually reflects how this church specifically already works. We're all bivocational. Even the people who, like, technically work here. Matt is a pastor, and he also works with international students. He has another job. Joe is a pastor here. He also works in construction, and he's working on Mendy's Pizza down the road. I work here, and I also work for the public school system. Even the Apostle Paul was bivocational. He was a tent maker. He also happened to be, like, the greatest missionary the world's ever seen. So you're bivocational. I'm bivocational. Um, And it's a tragedy when the church becomes this thing that people just attend and not something that we function as, not only in this building, but everywhere in our lives. And so last week, Joe was talking about how sometimes people just need to feel Jesus. They just want a glimpse of Jesus. And, um, and sometimes we're standing here and we just can't see him and we can't feel him. And this is where we come in. This is where God uses people to show them Jesus. That's our job. Um, and I like that Matthew does this. He does this with his friends who couldn't see Jesus. They, he, they couldn't understand what that meant yet. And he says, hey, come over. He's going to be here. Let me introduce you to the guy who changed my life, the guy who changed my whole identity, who redeemed me, who set me free. Let me bring you to that guy. So the, the other day I had, I got this video from my stepdad of my niece, um, who's, she's really cute, I don't mean to brag, but she's really cute. Um, she's two, almost three, and she's just this tiny little ginger baby. And um, she just has the best facial expressions, and she's so happy all the time. In this video, um, Papa's saying, Jesus is coming, Jaylee, Jesus is coming. And she's just lit up. She's like, Jesus is coming. And, and he's like, yeah, buddy, she is. And, uh, and she goes, Papa, where's Jesus? Where is he? And he says, he's everywhere. And she sits and she thinks for a second. She leans back and she, I wish I could do the look in her eyes. She gets this sparkle in her eyes and she goes, I want to see. And it's just, oh, so cute. And he goes, he's right in front of you. And she goes, oh, And honestly, like, you guys, this is the church. When people can't see Jesus, we say he's right here. This is him in my life right now, and we get to give other people hope. We get to show other people Jesus because there's people in front of me and people in front of you right now that cannot feel him, that cannot see him. And it's our job to show them and give them hope. You don't have to go anywhere. I had a pastor once that would tell our congregation all the time, you know, some of you are gonna be called to missions in other countries, but don't forget that you live in a mission field. There are people right here. Um, And I think it's really interesting that often we question God's capacity and ability to help us do the things that we're already in that you don't really have a choice in some of the things that you're in in your life. Like you're already a mom or you're already a dad. 
you already live here in Monmouth or you're already a student, you already are in that job, you're already here. So it's, I think we have to get over thinking that we have to be something else. When God has called us right where we're at, you're already doing it. And the enemy's gonna try to rob you of this idea that you're, that you're enough to do what God's already placed you in. But think for a second, like, what am I already doing? What are you already good at? What do people already come to you for? That might just be your ministry. Um, before uh, I moved into the house to become the house mom, I was here at church, and it was about the time that they had asked me to be the house mom, and I said no, and <laughs> that worked out. And I was actually in this stage of transition where I was like, I, I need to be doing something else. I need to be doing something bigger. I'm called to something bigger, and I don't know where it is, but it's not here. And I was moving to Bend because that seemed more adventurous. And so I was out and I said, you know, Joe, Lila, thank you for uh, considering me for the house mom role, but um, I'll pray about it. Which really meant I'm gonna pray about it and then tell you no. And uh, I was at church one day and it was before Bailey was really um, coming here a lot, but she happened to be here. And I'd met her maybe twice. Um, hadn't really talked to her much. And she came up to me after service and she said, hey, I just feel like I gotta pray over you about something. And I was like, okay, I can use all the prayer I can get. And, uh, and another girl was with her and she started praying over me and she said, I just feel like you are meant to build community. Like there's these, I just have this vision of like houses or villages or all these things of like you're building community. And I'm like, oh no. <sighs> Oh no, and I ignored that for a while. But, but it's so true that, that God said, Mackenzie, I, I, you, you're not going anywhere. What I'm calling you to is here. And sometimes you have to be brave enough to stay. You have to stay because there's something for you here. It's not an accident that you're here. And if I look over the, the history of my life, building community was not something new. I've been doing it my whole life. Every part of my job is building community. I've worked in camps for 12 years. That, that is building community. That's the little villages. That's all of it. And, and everything I do, I think my mind is already set towards building community to give people a place of belonging. And it was just like, hey, I'm going to use what you already have, the thing that you're already doing. So what kind of disciple are you? The question isn't, are you in ministry, but what kind of ministry are you in? Jesus used Matthew as a doorway into a community on the margins of society. Do you have a door into a community that you could bring Jesus through? Because you're either in the game or you're on the sidelines. Jesus doesn't really need a marketing department. He just wants disciples. Bob Goff says that you aren't an advertisement for Jesus, but rather evidence of his goodness. And, and I think we're always looking for a place to be comfortable. And I just, I'm not sure. I don't think when Jesus established the church and wanted you involved with it, that comfortable was on his list. 
Safe, yeah, for sure to be safe. But comfortable, I don't think so. Because this isn't a place to sit and consume a message and sing some songs and then feel good about it. We're called to care for a community that's right here. And whether these people that we want just them just to see Jesus more and more and more, and whether that's here in our church or another church in our community, I don't really care. I just want my hands in it. I just want to be part of it. And, and when we do that, when we run into the gap for people, when we go to them, when they can't come to us, there's nothing like that feeling. There's nothing like the feeling of being in the place where you know God's called you to be. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. But you can't access that feeling while being comfortable. So there's this pastor that I follow on Instagram, and I've read a couple of his books. I really like his work. And on Fridays, he does like a Q&A on his Instagram question and answer. And I was kind of struggling to like Matthew. I didn't dislike him. I just wasn't, I was like, well, this, he's a guy. But I, so I was kind of hoping like maybe for some inspiration. And so I asked him, which of Jesus' disciples uh, was your favorite? And he actually responded and he said, can I say me? And I was like, I wish you hadn't been sarcastic about that. I really need some inspiration here. And um, I think we do this though. It started to become really real for me that we do this thing when we think of Jesus' disciples, we think of 12 dudes 2,000 years ago. When over time there's been an uncounted number of disciples of Jesus and you and I are one of them. So the question is, what kind of disciple are you? And we could parse everyone out like a personality assessment. Like I could say over here, you guys are the Johns and you're the Peters, you're the Matthews, you're a two wing three, you're an orange, you're an ESFJ. But really what we wanna know is are you like Jesus? And I love personality assessments, trust me, I do. If you talk to me for any amount of time, I love them. I love hearing about myself and all the things that I already know and be like, hey, look, they know about me. I love that. But personality assessments are a tool to show us back to our identity in Christ. And even uh, the Enneagram is my favorite. And even they, the experts in the Enneagram say, it's not complete. It's just nine aspects of the divine. It's just nine pieces of who Jesus is and that we kind of have different strengths in that. So are you like Jesus? Are you becoming more like him? Are you using your gifts? Are you using your time, your energy, your resources to become more and more like him? Because it's not until I know who Jesus is will I know who I am. Jesus, I just, I'm just asking you today, Lord, that you would just solidify our identity in you, God, that, that in those spaces, God, that you would harness the things that are already there, God, and um, that you would put the right people in our lives to help speak into us and, and draw us into the calling that you have for us, God, that you would just give us confidence to keep walking and tell us, hey, you are enough for what you're already doing. I made you to do that. And uh, you just confirm that in us today, God. We just love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.